Welcome to the Impact Church Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us as we seek to establish Christ followers who live in obedience to God's Word and make an impact in their community and the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, Pastor Brad continues in his sermon series called Psalms of Summer as he speaks from Psalm 127 about arrows in the hands of a warrior. Are you ready to make an impact for Christ? The time is now. We are aware that there are some audio issues in this episode, and we appreciate your understanding. Happy Father's Day to all the dads and grandfathers and everybody out there, and welcome to Impact Church this morning. And uh, we're going to get right into it, and uh, we're continuing in our sermon series through the summer here, summer called Psalms of Summer, and we've been taking each week and going expositionally through a chapter in the book of Psalms. So this week, because it's Father's Day, we want to honor our fathers and uh, those who even aspire to be fathers. So um, if you're there and in that category as well, and and even amongst everybody else, we're going to have a message today in the um, book of Psalms in chapter 127 that's going to be very pertinent to fathers, families, and for all of us looking to live our lives in the blessing and the favor of God. So we're going to have a message today entitled, A Family in Favor with God, and then a subtitle, because if any of you guys have read ahead and you know this chapter, maybe you've even heard this before, the subtitle is, Arrows in the Hands of a Warrior. So we're going to look at that today. So, dads, grandfathers, aspiring dads-to-be, when your kids, your wives, when people look at you, Who do they see? I mean, really, who do they see? Do they see a hard worker? Do they see a a dedicated employee or a businessman? Do they see a a great husband husband or a fun-loving father that's just a lot of fun to, to be around? Do they see a sports fanatic? Do they see someone who can build it or fix it? Anything at all that's ever broke? Man, that's a great father or a person to have around, amen? Especially in the world where, man, it costs a lot of money to fix and and build things today. Maybe you're an avid outdoorsman and you enjoy being in God's creation and, and you love to press that upon your kids and people around you. So when people look at you, who do they see? And all those things are great that we just listed. And, and those are great things to have as, as attributes as, as a husband or a father. And very likely, if you're around your kids much, you're going to relay a lot of that to them because very likely they're going to follow in a lot of ways in your footsteps and what you do and what you show them and how they teach them. But can I tell you today that the same is true spiritually? What kind of example do you set for them with God? Do you depend on God? Do you follow God? Do you submit and surrender to God? Do they see you following Christ? Or is it just something that you could take or leave? And yeah, you know, it's, it's crazy. And on Mother's Day, it's like the, that's, the, that's the day to go to church. So mother, you take your mother to church and you go out to eat, right? Man, but on Father's Day, it seems like so many times that's the day to go to the lake, <laughs> That's the day to go to the beach. That's the day to go to the ball game. 
man, how twisted. And, and that seems so superficial. It may not be 100% true for everybody. But man, as a society, look at that difference. Mother's Day, we go to church. Father's Day, we're just, let's go do something else. And so what does that kind of mindset lead us? Where has it brought us as a society? Because I'm going to tell you right now, we need, God needs men who submit and surrender and follow Jesus as an example to their kids, their family, and their community. We are in desperate need of that. David Blackborn, Blackhorn, Blackenhorn, sorry, an author who wrote the landmark book, Fatherless America, he said this, quote, the United States is becoming an increasingly fatherless society. A generation ago, an American child could reasonably expect to grow up with his or her father. Today, an American child can reasonably expect not to, end quote. It's unfortunate, but here's the truth in America. Tonight in this country, four out of ten children will lay their head on their pillow in a home where their dad doesn't live there. In 1960s, a generation ago, that number was one in ten. So you see the attack the enemy has had on the home and on, especially on having God-loving, fearing fathers as an example. So we want to look at this today because fathers have become, become an MIA where it's like missing in action. And even if you're present in the home, it's so easy to get caught up in all the stressors and responsibilities of life that you don't engage with your family, with your kids. And that's just as dangerous as not being there, probably more so. So we have to hear from the Lord today and, and see what God has for us. And here's the truth. You may be in a situation, maybe in a, a remarriage situation where the kids that, that are in your home are not your own blood-wise, but they're your own heart-wise. And so you have that same responsibility to be a godly example. And that is the message for all of us today, regardless whether we're a dad, a mom, or just a young person growing up, aspiring to have a family one day. This message is for all of us. We know generally in America, the opinion is that fathers really don't matter. And there's a lot of ways we could get into that, but we clearly see through scripture that it's the opposite, that God designed the father to be the spiritual leader of the home. But yet society is like fathers don't matter. So if the father is not present, what should we expect to happen in our families, to our kids? What should we expect to happen in our future as a nation, as a society? What should we expect? And generally we could say what happens if we deviate from God's perfect design. Just in general, what happens if we deviate from that? Nothing good. So if the father is absent physically, or as we'll see even emotionally or relationally, then it affects and destroys our society, our homes. Some people might say, well, I don't even know if I believe the Bible. I believe in God. Well, let's look at some statistics that are in the secular world. Let's set the Bible aside for a minute. We're going to look at its truth, but it's always going to point back. All secular statistics are going to point back to the truth of the Bible. I don't know if you know that or not, but they will. So let's look at some. This is, again, out of this book, Fatherless America, with secular psychological research statistics. And it showed that as far as self-image in a child... It was shown to be 50-50 between a mom and a dad how they influenced that child. But the research continued and showed that two things were specific to dads, to fathers. 
One is this. The father is the primary determinant of a child's moral values. That's what they believe is right and wrong. That's why it's so important, dads, for you to be a student of God's word. For you to be a child of God and show them what it looks like to adhere to Christ and his word. The primary determinant of moral values. Second was this. The primary determinant of sexual identity in the child. The father is the primary influencer as to whether a little girl grows up knowing what it's like to feel safe, protected, and loved, and feminine. And for a little boy, what it's like to care for and love a woman and what it's like to be masculine, to be a man. That's secular research. If that's not enough, let me give you some statistics that you can look up yourself. So I'm not going to truly like hound on them, but these are from the CDC, Department of Health and Census, Department of Justice, all these, etc. Here you go. In fatherless homes, the kids in them in fatherless homes are 75% more likely to have chemical abuse and be in chemical abuse centers. They're 63% more likely to commit suicide. That's five times that that's in a home with a dad. In fatherless homes, the kids are 90% of them to be homeless or runaway children. That's 32 times higher than when the dad is present. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders are from a fatherless home. That's 20 times higher. 80%, get this, 80% of rapists and people with anger problems come from fatherless homes. That's 14 times higher than when the dad's present. 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. That's nine times higher. Approximately 40% of jail inmates in a 2002 survey come from fatherless homes. 85% of youth in detention homes and prisons come from fatherless homes. 90% of repeat arsonists, fatherless homes. Daughters are 53% more likely to marry as teens and 711% more likely to have a teen pregnancy in a fatherless home. 164% more likely to have premarital pregnancy at any point in time in a fatherless home. And they're 92% more likely to get divorced if they're from a fatherless home. Those are secular statistics. Those aren't padded statistics from focus on the family. Guys, everything points back to what the Bible is going to say is true. And that's that if we are engaged in our, our home and we are loving the Lord like we should, especially us dads, that it makes a difference. It really does. And you don't have to be perfect, so you don't have to beat yourself up. God's just asking that we follow him, that we love him, and then that where we're wrong, we admit we're wrong. And that we humble ourselves with our wives, with our kids, and before our Lord. And we show what it's like to be a surrendered follower of Jesus Christ. That makes a difference. That's making an impact. So I know all these statistics probably have your attention. And what we're going to look at today is there's a difference of when somebody builds their home and raises their family in Christ. And we're going to see from the wisest man that God uh, gave the, the, the wisdom to and gave inspired words to write down on this page so we could read today is there is a definitely different experience with a family who lives in the favor of God because they've surrendered to God and they let him provide 
protect and build everything that they live for. Let me pray for us before we dive in. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And Lord, we come to magnify you, to glorify you. Lord, to lift your name high. Lord, you're worthy of our praise because you're holy. And you're just. And thankfully, you're a father of grace and mercy for those that repent and surrender to you. Lord, we're just in awe of you today. And Lord, we're in awe of your word because you know, we know your word is truth and your words give life. So Lord, can we submit and surrender to your truth today? Lord, would you, through your spirit, allow the scales to fall from our eyes so that we could see your truth today? That we would not just limit our lives to our own understanding, but we would live for yours, for your purpose, for your will, for your direction, for your design, for our homes, for our families, for our community. Lord, that we could shine the light of Christ through us as we live according to your word. And Lord, we don't have the strength to do that on our own. Father, we need your spirit for that. So Lord, help us, give us the strength for the journey you have ahead in all of our homes, lives, and families. And we're gonna give you the praise in advance for everything that you're about to do in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have a copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and turn to Psalms chapter 127. Psalms chapter 127. And we're going to have five quick short verses to go through here today. So let's read God's Word together. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. All right, there's a lot in those first few verses. And let's go through an exposition and let's dig this out, what the Lord has for us here today. First, from the start, most people, most theologians believe that Solomon, of course, wrote this and was the author. It's possible that it could have been composed by David for Solomon, but we'll go with the um, assumption that Solomon had wrote this passage here today, inspired by God to put this down for us. So what we're going to see and know is that, and Solomon knew this, is that the Hebrew people were big on the preservation of home and family. It was huge to them. So let's see what we, what we see. Verse 1, right off the bat. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. I want you to think about that. Unless the Lord builds the house, everything you do is worth nothing. Think about that. That's what that, that verse really says if you kind of flesh that out. So Solomon here understood the work of man and, and that it was um, necessary and it had its place. But it was li of little ultimate value if it was not blessed and, and stood for by the Lord. 
So without God's work, without God's hand, without God's blessing, we labor in vain. So in translation, if we don't put God first in everything we do, we're not doing it for his glory, then we're doing it for ourselves and for our own glory. And that's worthless. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus himself gave a home building seminar. We just went through that a couple weeks ago. We're not going to read that in detail here. You can go back and check it out. But basically, he said there's two types of builders, right? You remember that. So there's a, a builder that builds his house upon what? The rock. The solid rock foundation of Jesus is what it's talking about. So when the storms come and the winds blew and the rain fell and it beat up on that house, it didn't fall. But there was a foolish builder. There was an unwise builder. And he built his house upon what? Sand. That's the shifting sand of the world. That's the, the sand of self and, and, and just self-gratification and pride. And now when that same storm come and beat against that house... It fell, and great was its fall. Solomon knew, and God wants to propose to us here again, that no house building is successful if you leave God out. And it's worth saying and, and looking at here, this Hebrew word for house, yes, it can be a dwelling, a physical house, but it's also meaning as a household, all right? means containing or pertains to a family. So it's not just talking about building a building, a structure. It's talking about building a household, a family. So when we try to build our family, if we're not building it on the solid rock foundation of Christ, it's not only useless, it's going to fall, Jesus said in Matthew 7. There's the word today. We know that this to be true, because how many times have we seen people just feverishly build their lives, build their homes, raise their families, do it all without the Lord, and it crash and fall for whatever reason because they didn't have Christ first in their life. Not talking about their physical house, of course, fallen, but their spiritual house, their house called life that we're all building. And the house that we build called life, God's going to require that we live in it. So what type of house are you building today makes all the difference in the world what you're building it on and that's what Solomon's pointing out here in this passage we know that a lot of times the and through the Old Testament that it would speak of the family as a house similar to how it would speak of a as a, fa a prominent family as a dynasty so we know we're not talking about just a physical home but a family second part of verse 1 says the watchman has his role also and he should stay awake, but God's work and blessing are needed for the, for the city to truly be guarded. Look, he didn't say it wasn't necessary for us to labor or, or, or toil or, or to build our homes or, or to do things. He didn't say it was not necessary for us to, to be wise and to, to offer some type of protection and provision over our families and our homes and our cities. It's not what he's saying. But he's saying, unless we do it with God first, it's useless, all of it. So when you look at building and when you look at a watchman who looks over, you start thinking about these things. Building, you think of a foundation. You think of structure. You think of design. You think of the labor that's necessary going into it. You think of the wisdom and the strength that's necessary to build it and sustain it and keep it going. And then when you think of a watchman, you think of provision and protection. Guys, that's what Solomon, that's what the word of God is pointing us to, is we need to look to all of that. 
Yes, we do that ourselves, but we looked as the source of that in Christ, that we depend on him to be the one who sustains, who builds, who provides, who protects. Otherwise, it's all in vain. So verse one is a, there's a Latin saying that's derived from that verse one. And it's this, it's nisi dominus frusta. I probably jacked that all up trying to pronounce it because I don't know Latin, you know what I'm saying? All right, but that's what this Latin saying is. It comes from this verse and it means this. It means without the Lord, frustration. Without the Lord, frustration. It's the motto of the city of Edinburgh, Scotland. And it's etched on all their city's official documents. Think about that. That's pretty good, isn't it? Without the Lord, there's frustration. That's on the city's official documents. It's a motto. It's a saying that they supposedly at one time at least lived by, whether they do still or not, kind of like America. We say in God we trust, but there's not too many people trusting in God anymore, even though it's on the wall of this school in the office. It's on our money, but not too many people trust in God, but yet it's etched there. It once was. It once was what they stood on. Man, what would it look like if that was etched on our homes? right? Without the Lord, frustration. What if it was etched on our courthouses? What if it was etched all over Washington, D.C.? <laughs> and it doesn't matter whether that was etched on physical structures or not, because it should be etched on our hearts. What if that was etched on our hearts? Without the Lord, frustration. Hey, that doesn't mean that with the Lord, everything is going to go smooth and well. We're not preaching a prosperity gospel here because there will be trouble. There will be hardships. But God is going to use them and see us through them. And if we handle them properly, people are going to see Christ and how we deal with those things. And they're going to come to know Jesus. That's what it's all about anyway, isn't it? And so there's the words in verse 1. So not asking that we cease to build or cease to labor or suggest that we neglect our duties or that we just sit back and do nothing and depend all on God. That's not what it's saying. But it is saying that as we do this, as we go about with our responsibilities, we trust in God for the benefit of it. We talked about this a couple weeks ago also, that the Lord that has the master key, but he's given us some keys, right? And he expects us to use our keys, our lowercase keys, while he holds the master key. And when we hold and when we use our lowercase keys and we do not deny his word and we do not deny his name, then he comes to bat and uses the master key to show up in ways that don't make sense in the eyes of man, where only he gets the glory. How many of you want a life like that? Man, I mean, that's just where you know and you can physically say and see and other people can say and see, I saw the hand of God right there. Makes all the difference in the world. The psalmist says that there's vanity in relying on your own strength. That it's done in vain means it's worthless, but then there's a, an attitude of pride behind it. That if we just think that we've got it all under control, we can do it ourselves, we can build our home, we can watch over our city, we can do what we need to do. We don't need you, God. I'll come get you if I need you, right? The genie in a bottle situation. I'll come to church when I got a problem, when things are, are, are hard and going on. No, 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 no. That, that doesn't work because God's not a genie in a bottle. Is he Lord of your life or not? Because he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. 
There's no bits and parts and picking and choosing. This isn't cafeteria-style Christianity where we pick out, pick out the pits, uh, bits and pieces of the Bible we like and that make us comfortable and we uh, subtract the things that kind of step on our toes and, and don't match what society thinks is right today. And we, and we kind of wishy-washy pick and choose. That's not Christianity. That is not it. You take all of this or you take none of this. That's truth. That's truth. And if you don't feel that way, you need to really surrender your heart to God right now. You say, God, Lord, show me. Maybe I've been deceived by the world. Maybe I've been deceived by my friends. Maybe I've been deceived by false teachers. Lord, your word is truth and I need to take all of it or none of it. Lord, help me. Show me where that I've been wrong. That's a heart of humility and repentance that God honors if you do that. But we labor in vain if we think we got it all figured out and can do it ourselves. Verse 2 goes into saying this. It's vain also for you to rise up early and to sit up late to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his people his beloved sleep. So what that's basically saying is, again, long hours do not necessarily mean prosperous work if the Lord's not involved. Is he at the center of everything you do? Do you do it for his glory? Or do you do it for your glory? Do you strive to make more money so you can spend it on yourself? Or do you strive to gain and maybe make more money so that you can give more? Whoa. There's a big difference in that. And God knows the motives of our heart. The psalmist even points out, it says, man, you may, you may rise up early and stay up late. But basically, if you're doing it without Christ, you're going to eat the bread of sorrows. What does that mean? It means basically if you're living your life and toiling and straining and striving with an attitude of desire of fulfilling the American dream in your life and just living for yourself, you're going to eat the bread of sorrows. Why? Because you're going to live a life of misery and labor, fretting all the time over disappointments and over opportunities missed in your life. You're going to live a life of anxiety and stress, eating up with envy at the advancement of others as people get opportunities that you don't and people rise up the ladder and get the promotions that you didn't get. It's going to eat you from the inside out. You can stay up late. You can you can work all you want, but if Christ is not the center of it, that bread you eat is going to be sorrowful. Everything that you've gained is not going to be worth anything. That's what the Bible's saying. There'll be no end to your labor, basically. Men who are affected by this, men and women who are affected by this and reliance on their own work, they live with anxiety and stress, and there's always, there's never enough. There's never enough of the things of this world. We got to get more. We got to get a new car. Got to get a bigger house. Got to get more money. Got to go on more vacations. Got to, got to, got to, got to, got to. That's just tiring to think about. But that's how so many of us live. With a fleeting thought of any of it being for Jesus. That's what the psalmist is talking about. That labor is in vain. And you eat the bread of the sorrows of this world, if that's what you're going to live for. 
Jesus, on the other hand, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, said this. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Because I'm going to be honest, all of us are busy, right? All of us got a lot of stress and anxiety, a lot of responsibility, and it weighs us down. And we feel like we're feverishly working, feverishly have to go. And Jesus said this, hey, all of you who are doing that because that's what you're going to experience in this world, hey, come to me. Because then what does he say? He continues, come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, because I will give you what? Rest. Isn't that what the psalmist just said? Oh boy, don't you love it when the Bible supports itself? Don't you love it when the very words of Jesus go back and support and corroborate what the Old Testament said? Because I don't know if you know this or not, Jesus is not only the author of the red letters in the New Testament, he's also the authors of the black letters throughout the whole Bible. What are you talking about, Brad? John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Verse 14, that verse, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hey, Jesus was there from the beginning. You go to Colossians chapter 1, says he's the firstborn of all creation. He's the, the um, image of the invisible God. Everything that was created was by him, through him, and for him. He is God. <laughs> he is there from the beginning. He is just as much the, much the author of Genesis as he is the red words in Matthew. Do you believe that? You should. Man, his word just supports his word goes back to say always use scripture to support scripture and to interpret scripture human wisdom okay sometimes but you have to go back to scripture to support and interpret scripture to make sense of things don't depend on man's wisdom man will lead you astray Jesus said come to me and I'll give you rest the rest of that passage says take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and I will find rest for your souls there it is again for my yoke is easy and my burden is light man you may have messed all this up already everything we've already talked about so far but Jesus is right here saying hey just come will you come to me right now you may have messed it up you may have got it all wrong you may have had the wrong heart attitude most of your life but we can get it right right now will you just come and fall on your knees and just follow me that's the beautiful beautiful offer of Christ and his finished work at Calvary you don't have to Get your life cleaned up and get it right first. It's not by works that we're saved. It's through faith. But will you just come in humility, submit and surrender to the authority and the lordship of Jesus over your life? He wants to give you rest. So we see in this passage after he moves from that into this next passage, this next part in verse 3, where he starts talking about children in a home and these arrows. Let's look at that. So he starts out, he says, children are a heritage, a blessing from the Lord. You know, Solomon knew there was wisdom in building your house with God. He knew there was wisdom in overseeing the city with God. He knew that there was uselessness in laboring, getting up early, staying up late if you weren't going to do it with God. But this is what he also knew. And this is what he's pointing out. Unless we raise our home our household our kids in Christ and in his word everything else we do is useless we can give them every opportunity they've ever wanted we can give them smartphones we can give them um, travel ball stuff and this that and the other you name it we can provide for them because the heart of a of a family is to provide to love on your kids but we can do everything for them that the world has to offer but if we never offer them the truth of Christ then we've done nothing children are a heritage from the Lord 
So Solomon's going to point out that God will provide. We've been looking at building, provision, protection, depending on the Lord for everything. So now we depend on the Lord for that type, same type of guidance, provision, protection, and wisdom as we raise our kids. A theologian, Dr. Andrew Clark, said this, Let the fruitful family, however poor, lay this to heart. Children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. And he who gave them will feed them. For it is a fact that the maxim formed on it has never failed. Wherever God sends mouths, he sends meat. Oh, that's pretty good, isn't it? Wherever God sends mouths, he sends meat. Man, there's, there's a message inside a message for that of application. That wherever God leads you, he's going to provide. It may not be everything you want, and, but it's going to be everything you actually need. He's going to provide. He does the same with kids, with our families, and our homes. Psalmist says, as, as happy are those who has his quiver full of them. They're like arrows in the hands of a warrior. These children that God has given and provide. That they're not a penalty. They're not a burden. Unfortunately, so many people in our society look at kids that way. As if they're just a, a, a necessity. Let's have another one so we can get another check and get a little more money. And this and the other. Like, like there's some kind of just anything that, that's at your will and at your purpose. That's not it. That they are designed in a plan of God. They're not a burden. They're not a penalty. Shame on the people who think they are doubtful blessings. Very likely that person is a doubtful blessing themselves who needs a significant heart and life transformation. Because they've deviated from God's design and God's way and how they look at and see life. And they look at it as meaningless. That's why our nation has fallen into the realms of abortion where we literally murder millions of innocent lives. And God's word says, I hate hands that shed innocent blood. We've lost our way because we've lost sight of the truth. When we're looking at kids, when we're looking at our homes, we need to keep sight of this truth. When we know this a little bit about the author, the proposed um, potential author of this passage, we know Solomon himself, although the wisest man in the Bible, maybe was not so wise in some ways. <laughs> he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Anybody else see a problem with that? <laughs> how do you do that, by the way, man? You know what I'm saying? Man, how do you have a thousand women? Right, I'm going to stop before I get myself in trouble. But Solomon probably knew a little bit about women since he had so many. And he says so many things through scripture about what it's like living, about having a home, what it's like. And so many times we get caught up with, we just want a wife that's, that's, that's pretty, man. We just, it's got to be our trophy wife or something like that. When God wants us to look at the heart. And even Solomon found this out. I guess he did if he had a thousand of them. He said things in Proverbs 27, a quarrelsome wife is like a dripping of a leaky roof in a rainstorm. Whew. That's a little annoying, isn't it? Restraining her is like restraining the wind or grasping oil with the hand. You ain't going to get nowhere, right? Proverbs 21, he said, it's better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. 
Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and ill-tempered wife. This is Solomon's words, not mine, by the way. Don't, don't send me emails. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 11, verse 22. Get this one. Talking about just wanting a, a wife that's beautiful and all this kind of stuff. It says, like a gold ring and a pig snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. Oh, man. Man, we, we spend so much time as a society, ladies, making sure our hair is perfect and our bodies are perfect and our clothes are perfect. How about we worry about our heart and make sure our heart is right before Christ and that we live a life pleasing to God. Men, how about we look for a woman like that? Not what the, not what the world says that it w- would look like great for you to have on your arm on wedding day, but what their heart looks like. Man, so many people, again, get caught up in this kind of trophy wife thing. So next time you see one that's got a really bad attitude and doesn't love Jesus, say, hey, man, I like your pig snout with the gold ring in it. Don't say that. (laughs) But perhaps Solomon knew a little bit about what he was talking about, about what it looks like to build a home because he had actually messed up himself. Let's be honest. And even the Bible says that because of all these women and wives, that they actually led him astray. They led him away from the Lord, and they caused great destruction and pain in his life. Why? He didn't do it God's way. (laughs) So even in the wisdom of the wisest man, we still get when you don't do it God's way, you fail. You fall. Beautiful lesson there, even from the man speaking through God to us in this passage. We know that Solomon probably said that blessed is the man who has a quiver full of kids because as of we know in scripture, he only had three. He had all these wives and concubines, but were only listed three kids that he had, two daughters and a son. And his son followed in the ways of the unfortunate, at the end of Solomon's life, how he turned away from God. So did Rehoboam turn away from God. And so we see this fall if we don't do it God's way, if we turn away from the Lord. But let's look at this one passage and and let's bring this out because there's a lot in this. It says like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Do you look at your kids like something that you are commanded to take care of for the purpose of sending them out? You're raising little missionaries, in other words. That'd be a great way. That's a... just beefed up the responsibility a little bit, didn't it? It did. And here, here's, here's the glaring point that I want to bring out because I've known it in my life. I know having yours. We can teach them. We can train them. We can raise them up in it. But can we make their decisions for them? No, unfortunately. Can we change their heart? No. Who's the only one that can change somebody's heart? Oh, you don't mean mom and dad can change their heart? No, 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 no. You can't. Only Jesus can. But your job is to show them the right way. And then when they step off to correct them, bring them back and say, hey, this was wrong. This was a bad decision. I've let you a little rope. You hung yourself with it. Let's get back in line. And that's what our job is. But we can't change their heart, unfortunately, because we all would want to. But we are to train them and love them and to be on our knees praying for them. But when you think of these arrows... If if any of you know anything about archery, you can have the nicest bow in the world. But if your arrows are cheap, you're not going to hit the bullseye. You're not. They're not going to go where you want them to. Arrows have to be made with precision. They have to be carefully shaped and formed so that they're not 
bent or skewed or unbalanced. Even when, if you're a hunter and you know broadheads and you, and you got to put a broadhead on the, on the arrow, if, that, if you use a fixed blade where the blades already stick out, broadhead, you have to match that up and balance that for it to fly straight. Because the arrow by itself may fly true, but once you put that on there, if you don't tune and balance it, it's way off the mark. So we see that it takes shaping and forming with these arrows. It's a message we can get in that. They must be given care or they won't fly straight. They must be guided with skill and strength. It takes strength to pull a bow back to shoot an arrow. It takes strength from the Lord for us to pull the bow back to release these arrows of our kids into a society, into a godless society that's going the opposite direction. It takes the strength of Jesus in our lives to do that. It takes the skill that only he can give and the wisdom that only he can provide as we raise our kids on how to discipline them, how to correct them, how not to crush their spirit, but yet to, to stand firm on, on what right and wrong is. They must be aimed and given direction. That's the responsibility of the warrior to aim them the right direction. If you have the bow aimed the wrong way, you're not going to hit the mark. That goes without saying. But so many times, we send our kids off in the wrong direction in the ways of the world and somehow expect them to hit the bullseye. Which way are you aiming these arrows? They won't find direction on their own. They won't. And in some respects, they can only be launched once. One arrow gets one shot. Which, that, that, that's the, the, the message in this arrow and, and a warrior is one arrow, one shot, one respect to, to raising them and, and showing them the right way and then sending them on their way, hoping they make the right decisions and their heart is surrendered to Christ as they go. So they're an extension of the warrior's strength, an extension of the warrior's accomplishment. And they have potential to either do much good or much evil. Nothing, no one will be a, trait, a straight, true flying arrow by chance, but only by intent. We must be intentional as we raise our kids. People are probably already thinking of the Proverbs verse. Again, Solomon Speaking through Proverbs in 22, verse 6, where he says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. There's a lot of theology here in this and a lot of stuff that we could take the time and dig out. We just don't have the time to today. But some people, some theologians believe that verse is kind of misquoted and misunderstood because there's a, a lot of loss in the, in the Hebrew translation where it says should, and, and the word should um, doesn't fit well in the Hebrew original text. Whatever the case, there is some truth in the way we train them that when they're old, they'll know the truth, right? We have to plant the seed. How will they know the truth if they're not exposed to it? But here's the thing, and this is where theologians think that this is misquoted, is we claim this as a promise that if we train them right, they will end upright. Again, we go back to, can we change their heart? No, only Christ can. Only their free will to surrender to Christ as he calls. He's got to call them. They have to surrender to it. That is it. You can't do it for them. So really the promise is not to parents that if you raise your children right, they'll always follow that way because we know there's so many examples where that's not the case, unfortunately. 
So if that was the case, that would make God's word not true. So again, it supports what these theologians going deeper in the Hebrew are finding out that more, like, more likely it would be said this, that it's a warning to those who allow their kids to grow up without guidance, who raise them to go their own way. The children left to their own way are not likely to change. They'll become adults who go their own way, which is the wrong way. Solomon even says that later in Proverbs 22, verse 15. He says, Folly's bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. It goes back to the guidance, the shaping, the direction that we are commanded to do as parents, as fathers, to leading our kids. So we know in raising kids, moms or dads, there's responsibility, there's influence, and there's results that we know we can see only through Christ. Again, we do the labor, we do it, but we depend on God to do what only he can do in the meantime. And we raise and we build and we preserve and we protect and we provide with dependency on Christ as we labor. So if children are a reward, then there's a great blessing, a great happiness in having children. Solomon says even blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And that doesn't necessarily mean super numbers because sometimes your quiver can be small. You know what I'm saying? Where two fit just fine. That's my quiver. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if people have 10 of them. I don't know how y'all do that. I already pulled all my hair out. See, with two. So the, when the quiver is full, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to have six, eight, ten. Your quiver could be full with one. Your quiver might be full right now with none in your aspiration and dependency on Jesus. Maybe you're in a situation like my wife and I were, where, where we went through some infertility issues, and we had to truly depend on God for years before we were blessed with a child. Whatever situation you're in, ultimately, are you depending on God for the result and trusting him that he knows some say that kids will make a rich man poor, but what Solomon is saying is they'll actually make a poor man rich. Will you look at him like that? That there's joy in raising and building a home if we do it God's way. They're going to bring you to your knees. It's a German proverb that says, many children make many prayers, and many prayers bring much blessing. Again, depending on God to do his work in their little hearts in their little lives, just praying constantly, Lord, guide their eyes, protect their eyes and their ears, guide their hands, guide their feet, help them surrender their heart to you. Do you pray like that over your child as you guide and direct them? It ends in this passage as we close up with the gate of an ancient city. What does that mean? This end of verse five, it says, they shall not be ashamed but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. You see, it goes back again that even doing everything right, even living life God's way, even raising your kids well, doesn't mean that there won't be difficulty. Doesn't mean that there won't be people who come against you, who put you down, who slander you, who whatever, you fill in the blanks. There will be quote unquote enemies. So what's this verse saying? That they're going to go to their enemies at the gate and, and wage war? No, that's not what it's saying. When you look at this, the gate in this ancient Hebrew time and, and place was a place where justice was administered. It was the chief place of concourse where, where deals were made. 
So it gives this idea that the enemies would come to the gate and you will have the ability to deal with your enemies properly at the gate. Get this. The enemies are not inside. You see, you go back to the doing it the wrong way, building your house the wrong way, watching over the city the wrong way, toiling and laboring the wrong way. Problems occur. Building your house on the sand and it falls, the enemy gets inside. And you lose provision, protection, everything you've built, everything you've labored for is for nothing. Doing it God's way, yes, there'll still be people that come against you that you need to deal with in certain circumstances. But they'll always be at the gate. They'll never be in the home. They'll never be in the city. They'll never break the, the security of the fortress that God has put. God holds the enemy on a leash. Do you know that? He does. Sometimes he allows trials and things to happen that the enemy asks for. But oftentimes not, I believe, the enemy has asked for things to do destruction and harm in your life. That when we do what God's word says, submit ourselves to God and resist the devil, he flees from us. How many times could we have avoided pain and trouble and destruction in our lives if we would have just submitted to God and resisted the enemy? Then that is a promise that he'll flee. But you got to submit to God first. You can resist the devil, resist the devil, resist the devil all you want. You can try harder, try harder, try harder. But until you submit to God, that effort is in vain. It takes God to overcome. The enemies will be at your gate, not inside your walls, not inside your home, not inside your mind, not inside your heart. But you'll deal with them at the gates, the gate of protection and provision of God Almighty. I don't know about you, but I want to build a home like that. I want that. Man, because as we stand on God's word and as we do life God's way, there's going to be people that come against us that unfortunately the enemy's going to use their hearts, minds, hands, and feet to just do what they do. But our battle's not against flesh and blood. It's against a spiritual power, force, and enemy. So that's why we must submit to God, surrender to him. So... There's an advantage to raising our kids and doing life God's way, to building our house on the solid rock foundation of Christ because anything else that we labor and toil over is vain. And if all we do is we just, we're looking forward to, to just, man, just being successful in the American dream. And I'm going to wake up early and I'm going to stay up late and I'm going to work weekends and I'm going to do this. And hey, don't get me wrong. There's times where you have to do that, man. We know that. But don't let Satan twist scripture on you and make you think, oh, you're a provider. You got to do all that at the sacrifice of your home, at the sacrifice of your relationships with your wife and your kids. That's your first calling. You can labor and toil in vain, but if you do that, just chasing the American dream, chasing what the world says is going to make you happy, and you forget all that God's blessed you with and put in front of you, you're going to be eating the bread of sorrows. That bread you eat ain't going to be very sweet. What type of house are you building? What type of home are you building? What type of household are you building? Are you raising? Let's get it right today. Let's bow our head and close our eyes. And I just want to first want to ask, going back to this house of life, what type of life are you building for yourself? What have you put your hope, your purpose, your wisdom into? Has it been the ways of this world? 
or has it been Christ in his word? If you could say honestly that it 100% hasn't been Christ in his word, then I'm going to ask you to surrender today. What is surrender? And Ward's raising the white flag. He's saying, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done fighting. I'm done trying. I am surrendering, which means I'm submitting to your leadership, your authority. That's surrender. That's repentance. That's what brings salvation. Have you done that? If not, do it right now today. Surrender to Jesus, your heart, to him. If you've never done that, I'm going to lead you through some words that I would like you to pray from your heart to God's heart. But again, like we say every week, it's not these words that save you. It's not a magic prayer. It's about your heart. It's what Romans 10, 9 and 10 says. With your heart that you believe in are justified. Yes, with your mouth that you confess and are saved. But where's your heart? Your heart surrenders. Your tongue just speaks, but your heart surrenders. Will you surrender it today as you speak to God and ask Him to come into your life for the first time? Or if you're here and you say, Brad, I'd walked with the Lord previously in my life, but lately, man, I've, I've drifted, I've swayed, I've walked away. and Man, in so many ways, life's been hard, and, and I'm not walking with the Lord like I used to. My fire's grown dim. It's maybe just burning embers. And I want to come running back to the cross today and recommit my life to Jesus to get on fire for him. If that's you, I want you to speak from your heart to God's heart with this same prayer right now and come running back to the Father, the perfect example of a heavenly Father who never does us wrong. So to surrender your life for the first time or recommit your life to him right now, speaking to God from your heart, just say, Dear Lord, I admit to you right now that I've messed up, that I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of your glory, and I'm in need of you, my Savior. Thank you for sending your only son, Jesus, to take the penalty that was due me for my sin, and he put it on himself. He paid my price for my sin so that I could be set free. His body was broken and his blood was shed for me. And Lord, I surrender to your Lordship right now so that I can be forgiven, so I can be covered in the blood, so that I can be set on a new path and be a new creation where the old is gone. And everything you have for me that's new will come. And thank you for raising from the grave three days later, proving that you are God. And you stand in victory right now over hell, death, and the grave. And Lord, I want to claim right now that same victory right now in my life, Lord, because I need it. I'm tired of doing life on my own. I'm tired, tired of running this race on my own strength, Lord, because I'm falling and I need you right now. So as of right now, I raise the white flag and I surrender. I submit to your authority. I submit to your word. I submit to your lordship. And I repent 
of my sin. That means I turn away from myself, my pride, the things of this world, and I turn to you. And I'm asking you to help me now walk in the way that you have for me. Because I commit the rest of my life is for your glory. Amen. If you did that right now, you submitted, surrendered, repented, put your faith in Christ right there today for the first time, or you recommitted your life to Jesus. Did you just raise your hand? Said, Brad, I prayed that prayer. I meant business with God today, and I'm not ashamed. Amen. I see some hands. If I don't see you, God does. And that's the more important. Amen. Impact Church, can we give Jesus a big round of applause? He deserves it for his word and his truth and what he does in our hearts and our lives and in our homes. So let's take this message this week and let's go and let's make an impact for Christ. Like we talk about every week and as I was just broken, as, as uh, Tony was singing this song, speak Jesus. And it was just speaking Jesus over you guys and over this community and over this church and everything God's called for us. I feel like the Lord just wanted to remind you of our mission and our vision right here today. And our mission statement is, of course, the Great Commission, that we exist to establish Christ followers, that's disciples, who live in obedience to God's word to make an impact in our community and our world. And our vision is this, is to be a catalyst for revival through evangelism and discipleship that's made evident by families mended and engaged in the local church and the power, hope, and love of Christ being radiant in our homes, schools, and community. That's it. That's everything we just talked about right there. Can we surrender to his lordship today? Let him guide our hearts. Let him guide our homes. And let Jesus do what only he can do through us as we look to reach forest for Jesus. Hey, I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot of growth taking place. There's condominiums and apartments, whatever these are going to be over here, where there's going to be hundreds of families coming to this community. There's going to be people coming into this church that we don't know yet, and they're going to be members of this body that God's going to use. Are y'all excited about that? Amen. So as you see new faces come to church every week, man, meet them. And don't just meet them, introduce them to two or three other people. You're going to see lots of families, lots of visitors. You may see some today. And you may feel silly. You may say, hey, I never met you. To be like, dude, I've been here for three months. Who cares? If you haven't met them, meet them anyway. Like they're the first time you ever met them. Because it is. Like they're new. But get engaged with each other. Meet everybody. Introduce them to somebody. Love on them. Because I promise you, God wants to do an amazing work. Can we get our hearts right to be a part of it? Amen. Hey, I love you. Take this message this week. Grab some friends, bring them back to church next Sunday as we go into Psalms 107 and we start to look in depth at what it looks like to be set free from bondage and chains that wrap us up. We're going to be talking about our Chain Breakers ministry, our, our uh, CR Celebrate Recovery that we're getting ready to start and launch off here. You don't want to miss it. Come back next week. Let's make an impact for Jesus. Thanks again for joining us today. The Lord is truly doing an amazing work and we would love for you to be a part of it. Check out the show notes for links to our website and social media pages. Or if you're ever in the Lynchburg or Forest, Virginia area, please come on by and join us in making an impact for Christ.